When was that moment when somebody, an adult, a supervisor, a mentor, a family member, a teacher, saw me, right? Really created this moment for me that sort of allowed me to see myself as something more. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I am, of course, your host, Luca Parry, and it's my delight to be joined today by Ulka Joshi Hansen. Ulka is a mother, educator, researcher, and advocate who over 25 years has spanned classrooms, nonprofit leadership, philanthropy, and consulting. She is driven by a vision of education that attends to and supports the development of young people's humanity and creates experiences that help them realize their unique potential, the place where who they are and what the world needs intersect. She is an internationally recognized expert on educational transformation at the level of instruction, assessment, organizational design, and policy systems. And Ulka brings a diverse set of experiences in working with educators, funders, policymakers, researchers, legislators, business leaders, and community advocates. Frankly, every part of the ecosystem that really contributes to the formation of young people and how we value and construct education. She is a two-time TED speaker and holds a BA in philosophy in German from Drew University, a certificate in early childhood and elementary education, and has earned her PhD from Oxford University and a JD from Harvard's Law School. She's been recognized for her leadership as a Harry Truman Scholar and a British Marshall Scholar and a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. Uh, she's also the author of the book that's in my hand, The Future of Smart, How Our Education System Needs to Change to Help All Young People Thrive. Ulka, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Luca. It's great to be here. I'm very taken by the way that you, you frame the opportunity that we have. Uh, but let's start with something a bit more practical. What is something for you that you've learned recently? <laughs> so beyond beyond jumping into the world of social media and Clubhouse, which was surprising, <laughs> yeah. um, I've recently been reading um, some papers that are just looking at the impact of social media and tech on our brains. And I've just, I had never really thought about the idea that there are people who are genetically kind of predisposed to behavioral addictions. So we often think about substance abuse, um, you know, when we think about addictions, but in the same way that addiction doesn't necessarily show up until you're put in a situation where you are exposed to something, there are people who are, um, who are predisposed to behavioral addiction. And I think that's really interesting as we think about the tech world, as we look at what's come out recently about Facebook and TikTok and the ways in which, you know, companies are intentionally manipulating um, their platforms to try and get reactions from young people. So I've just been delving into that and it's been um, both enlightening and a little bit concerning. Uh, yeah. You know, I have 13 and 15 year old and so we're smack in the middle of this world. That's such an interesting thing to reflect on. We've had a few people on this podcast speak to the challenges of technology. Uh, you know, Nicholas Carlyle talked, you know, the idea that for the first time ever last year, more children spent more of their waking hours online than offline. And so we are now very much in this digital native world and, you know, the Center for Humane Technology and, uh, you know, Tristan Harris and some of the team there that looking at what are the harms of technology that might be intentional or unintentional. It's such an interesting world, um, particularly now that we're, Facebook's going meta, 
right? Which is mm. very recent news over the last year. You know, building an internet on top of an internet. I mean, that could be a, that could be this whole podcast. But um, <laughs> I mean, and it, I'm sure you'll speak to it as well around you know how how do we design environments uh, that aren't just about the attentional hijacking, but actually are about kind of deep work and contribution. So so take us a little bit into your world. You've got a wonderful kind of breadth of experience across law, education, research and languages, which is another um, commonality that we share. What's the big idea you've been focusing on? I've been really curious about how we shift our understanding of education, but also our systems generally away from systems that kind of predefine things. So in this case, mm. ask, us, ask us the question, are you smart? And instead kind of think about systems, including education systems that ask, how are you smart, right? How do we create opportunities, environments, learning and growing experiences for young people as well as adults, frankly, mm. um, that enable them to look inward, to get a sense of who they are, um, what's important to them, what gives them purpose and fulfillment, and sort of find the place where who you are and what the world needs intersect. And so, you know, that is for me, as I explore this question, the future of smart, it's how do we go from are you smart to how are you smart? And then what does that mean in terms of all of the systems um, that we need to shift to make that real? Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, and then there's also this concept of who gets to be smart. You know, which is the idea of thinking about the systemic impacts and barriers potentially that are that also, you know, f frankly, um, elevate particular types of contribution. Um, okay. I'd love, I'd love you to reflect on because this is really the system conversation, a system level change conversation, uh, and also I, I love this convergence between the inner world and the external world, the outer world, of how does who I am, and then you know, impact how I contribute to the world and then how does that feed back into. Um, and, you know, the idea of if we had to redesign anything, I often talk about ikigai, you know, which is just a great, a great Venn diagram and I'm an educator, so who doesn't love a good Venn diagram? But, you know, this idea of really converging around not just what you're good at and what you love but also what the world needs and ultimately what you can be paid to do. And this, this is a lifestyle design conversation, I suppose, when it comes to that. So take us a bit more into that world. What, what is... What are the main obstacles as you see them, Ulka? And then how do we in some ways transcend where we currently are and, and reimagine re and then remake? So one of the reasons I decided to write this book is because you know, there are obviously a lot of books that have come out over the last 20, 30, 50 years talking about how education doesn't work and what we need to do differently. But one of my observations, and maybe this is because I'm a philosopher, maybe it's because I've sort of lived in and experienced lots of different cultures, was that we don't actually dig into the underlying values and assumptions that undergird this thing that we have all learned to call the factory model of education. So we point at the factory model or the industrial model and, and we sort of say that's not good. Um, and it's felt like we've made cosmetic changes. So instead of having kids sit in desks, you know, in rows, we put them at tables. Instead of having books, we use digital kind of curricula and computers. But to me, the question was really, what are the underlying values and assumptions about human beings, about who young people are, what they're capable of, what the purpose of education is? What are the assumptions? And so in, in the book, the first third of it, which could feel like a really long time, is actually taking us backwards. 
And it starts us off about 500 years ago at this period in human history that I think is, is incredibly unique, um, right? It's right around the time of the scientific revolution. And before that time, human beings lived in small communities, mm. you know, children were educated in life, through life, through their families and communities. They learned what they needed to survive and to contribute. Um, and human beings, I think, had this different sense of themselves in relationship to the world, right? We had our creation stories, they had gods and goddesses because they didn't fully understand this thing, but they knew they were a part of it. So I think of that view of the world and it's the one I kind of call holistic indigenous, right? As being about wholeness and connectedness mm. and embodiment, right? And then the scientific revolution happened. And what slowly started to happen was this uber rationalization, right? That we could somehow stand apart from yeah. the world, that we could break it apart, that we could understand it. So we started fragmenting the world. We took information and knowledge out of context to try and understand it. And we started to privilege this kind of mind um, learning, right? This mm -hmm. abstract conceptualized learning. And so, you know, when Descartes said, I think therefore I am, like that, that has deeply influenced our culture. And I think it's really important to understand that divide in worldviews and the ways in which the factory model really reflects this Cartesian Newtonian ethic. And when we point at the factory model, we're not pointing at how things are organized, or at least that's not what I think we should be pointing at. I think yeah. we should be pointing at a different way of being in the world and creating systems that then allow us as human beings to be in the world in a different way. I think this is such a, it's a beautiful way of taking us through a few centuries of history, I think, Hulka, and understand, you know, for us to reflect on how do we get here, which is such a critical question to ask, you know, because otherwise we do, you know, we, we don't go deeply enough. I mean, one of the great questions that has been asked on this podcast many times by, by great guests is, you know, what is success? Like, what is this mm -hmm. for? I mean, these are philosophical questions, actually. It's not about an incremental shift. It's, it's actually what are we all doing here? Why are we here? And, you know, again, you speak to the kind of core foundation that purpose has in, in any kind of design of a system or an experience or environment, whatever the case might be. So take us a little bit now into what's required. I mean, the, the idea, you know, of this cleaving of the, the full human, right, into these different dimensions and then privileging particular ones, you know, we might say the primacy of the cognitive. Um, recently, uh, we had... Professor Jean Clinton, who's a psychiatrist and child development expert, talk about, you know, the tyranny of academic obsession and how it kind of does just, it doesn't allow us to be embodied in a way. It becomes all about what you do and then our language is, well, what do you do? And then it becomes status and that's your, your sole purpose and your sole value. You kind of, you know, internalize this industrial paradigm. Where, how do we progress from here because in some ways it's not invention it's also remembering i mm. think which is the, i love i love the distinction between cartonian you know Newton, newtonian physics and and kind of the scientific piece and holistic and indigenous thinking which in some ways has remained uh fully human um in some ways what, what, what would you what are your reflections on that so the two worldviews birth really different systems across lots of dimensions, right? So 
whether it's in science and the disconnect between Newtonian physics and quantum physics, whether mm. it's classical economics and behavioral economics, whether it's yeah. kind of unrestrained capitalism versus social capitalism, right? There are all these systems that look different if you design out of the different worldviews. Education is one of those things. So, um, you know, part of what I think is important and interesting about this book at this moment is that when we look around, I live in the US, mm -hmm. um, but we have you have listeners who are around the world, but when we think about the debates we're having in many cultures and countries right now, it feels like we are fundamentally having a worldview debate. Which values do we want reflected in the systems, economic systems, political systems, social systems? And so, you know, to me, it's really important to kind of then look to, all right, so what what type of an educational experience was birthed out of a more holistic indigenous kind of way of being? And the label I put to it is human-centered liberatory. And liberatory is really a reflection of this idea that the same worldview that birthed our industrial model of education birthed enslavement, birthed yeah. colonialism, birthed the exporting of a modern Western culture around the world and sort of the decimation of the indigenous mm. culture that existed elsewhere. Um, and so as we think about where we want to go in education, it feels really so liberatory, right? Is this idea that we are freeing ourselves very intentionally from the types of social, political, economic agendas that were part and sort of built into the factory model and this idea of mass education. So, you know, to me, we've got to kind of step back and say, look, if the purpose of education really should be about looking at the human beings in front of us and helping them to unfold, right? The, the folks who developed the factory model didn't know about human development. They thought children were little adults, yeah. right? But they just, they didn't understand about development and developmental stages. Um, they didn't understand very much about learning and what true deep learning was. So at this moment in time, with the knowledge and the capability that we have to step back, take the knowledge that we've acquired over the last 150 years or so, I think the question is then, is the purpose of education to create economic and social units? Or is the purpose of education to help create thriving human beings who have what they need to live purposeful lives? And part of that is contributing to the world and earning, a, you know, earning money and raising a family. But a large part of it is also a sense of purpose, a sense of identity, a sense of self. You know, at least in the U.S., I find it ironic that it's perfectly okay to be 45 and have a midlife crisis and then turn around and say, I want to live a life of meaning and purpose. But we find it perfectly okay to take young children and say to them, you know, just sit down, shut up, don't worry about it, just do it because I told you to, um, and live your entire life until you hit that moment of crisis without a sense of purpose, right? Mm -hmm. That seems really backwards to me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's such a, it's such a, it's it's so true. It's like at that moment we like we kind of discover who we are far too late. And I, I was taken by something that I heard from you actually on one of your one of your talks, which was this idea that that factory model, which was designed in a past paradigm for a past paradigm, which you know we have inherited, and as you say, we just back then people didn't know what they now what we now know. Uh, it's this idea that a lot of young people leave school with a really great idea of what they're not good at. Mm -hmm. And that seems like an enormous waste of human potential. I mean, one of the statistics that I, I often reflect upon is that 
and this is an Australian statistic, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's the case in other jurisdictions, you know, one in three senior secondary students actually choose subjects that they think they might get a better grade in than the ones that they truly love and are uplifted and enlightened by. And I mean that, again, similarly, this idea that we kind of funnel towards, the, you know, Yong Zhao talks the sausage model maker, you know, it's like how, it really just need to kind of, so, so my question to you, and I really like your reflections about how we shift our gaze and the idea that the worldview does, does you know, manifest, does kind of, everything kind of comes out of what we believe and we need to make the unconscious conscious, otherwise it drives our decisions to paraphrase Jung. But do, do you think that, do, how optimistic are you about this, this shift towards this human-centered liberatory piece? You know, can we just embed that um, into our education systems or at scale because I think as you've reflected as well there are amazing educators and schools doing this work right now but so often they're still the exception that are operating either within or sometimes even outside the system constraints. So these human-centered liberatory models have existed as long as the kind of more factory industrial models have existed right they wow. were in a sense a countercultural response to those schools and those programs Interesting. and so historically they have been there but I would say what they have produced has always been countercultural and therefore kind of more on the fringes, either of those who wanted to be outside of the, the existing system or ironically, at least in the US, people who have power, access and privilege who send their children to private schools that tend to have this model, right? So yeah. the good news is that there are these models out there for us to learn from and we know what it takes to do it. And in the second part of the book, I lay out this framework that came out of some of my research where there's kind of, I think of three buckets of schools. I don't know about, you know, in Australia, but at least in the US, we, it feels like we have a lot of debates around the governance model of school. Is it yeah. gov government run? Is it a charter? charter Is it a private yeah. independent? And that doesn't actually tell you anything about how a school approaches its work. So the three buckets are really conventional, which is your factory model. There's this huge bucket in the middle that I think of as, um, innovative reform, whole child innovative reform. And that's, we recognize what doesn't work in the conventional system and we bolt on solutions, right? So we bolt on things to mitigate the harm. We do socio-emotional learning, we do project-based learning, mm. we do culturally responsive practice, but we haven't foundationally changed the structure of the system. And anybody who's listening, who's an educator knows this experience, right? You hear about another program or another initiative that's coming in and they're all bolted on and everyone's exhausted, nothing is done particularly well, and often these systems kind of buckle under their own weight. Mm. And then the third bucket is this human-centered liberatory, and they are designed inside of that holistic indigenous worldview with a different set of values, different set of assumptions. So to, to my mind, you know, that, when you look at the visual in the book, Right. That work is incredibly complex. It's, it's complicated because you're trying to do this really deep, rich work that starts with the human beings mm. inside the system and builds an ecosystem of relationships and of kind of mutuality that then becomes the foundation for the, the rest of the work that's done, right? So that people can see who is there and design the education system and learning experiences around the human beings who are in front of them and empower them to actually mm -hmm. make that happen. So when I think about a lot of the reform that's happened in countries around the world over the last 20, 30 years, I think of it as sitting in the middle bucket. So the question is, how do we make room and space for the third buckets 
to move from the fringes um, yeah. of the system into the dominant part. And so in the third part of the book, I, I talk about that change innovation curve, yeah. right? Where, first of all, I think we have to distinguish, and I think policymakers, funders, educators, parents, students, students, right? We all need to distinguish between the middle bucket and the human-centered laboratory. And then we need to very intentionally create research and development space for the folks who are doing the human-centered laboratory work to build the systems and structures that are aligned and supportive of their work, right? We need to be able to answer the question, how do you count learning if it's not happening inside a classroom with a teacher? How do we assess if we're not doing it only through paper and pencil tests that privilege cognitive abstract knowledge and not doing? How do we hold systems accountable? How do we do post-secondary admissions in ways that, you know, allow young people to kind of go on to pathways? And there are the beginning points of answers to that, right? But we need to allow the like-minded who are already doing the work to build those systems and structures. And over time with a change adoption curve, right, you start with the coalition of the willing. Mm -hmm. And then as you make things visible, often the next kind of wave of people looks and goes, well, why can't my kid have that? Yeah. And all of a sudden you sort of shift the demand. So this is not a two-year project, obviously. This is a 20 to 30-year project. And we're not particularly good at operating in those timelines in education for lots of reasons. But I do think that's the only way we get there is to kind of have that long-term vision and then, you know, take each stage as it comes. Mm. I, I love the curve of adoption work and, and also this, you know, the different the different levels around the different aspects of what makes a school a school, you know, pedagogy, curriculum, you know, the, the things that when you walk into a learning environment, you go, okay, this feels like a learning environment. You know, there's, there's kind of a what, there's a how, there's some human beings. I suppose my, I'd love you to speak a little bit to that, you know, for like, you know, the idea of moving from perhaps it is a spectrum, you know, for example, teacher, teacher driven, you know, through mm -hmm. to teacher guided, then all the way through to kind of play based or emancipatory, um, what are the kind of what are those spectrums that really need to shift across those different components that we might say that make a school feel like a school? So you know, I mean, the teachers that listen to this podcast, they'll be teaching tomorrow and doing the great work that they do. And sometimes I'm quite guilty of this. I get so excited about the system level conversation that you know it's like there are human beings doing this work every single day. So what are the kind of what are those progressions? developmentally that take us towards moving that third bucket, as you say, back into the kind of dominant or the emerging mainstream? So I'll take that question on two levels, right? I mean, the first is just in terms of thinking about the purpose of education, right? So we, we need to think about when we think about the experiences we're creating, what's the purpose of what we're doing? How are we thinking about the developmental needs of the young people who are sitting in front of us? What are our theories of learning? Um, how are we assessing things? And then most foundationally, I think, in these human-centered laboratory environments, how are we creating community and relationship, right? Mm -hmm. We often talk about it as classroom management and discipline, but in these environments, I actually think it is about how do we create community um, and a, a mutuality and a responsibility to one another. And so those are all elements, right? If I were an educator, to be able to sort of look and explore. And in the book, I, I try and break this out, right, with different things under each of those categories and to kind of say, you know, here's where I am. Like, this is how I have tended to think a lot about kids' cognitive needs or their academic needs or their social and emotional needs. But gosh, I haven't really thought a ton about how they think about their own identity. So maybe that's an area where I can push in or lean in a little bit. Or, you know, I do kind of believe in 
you know, inquiry-based work, but it's still kind of teacher-directed in the sense that I'm the one who gives them the topic as opposed mm. to, gosh, why don't I ask them what they're interested in and let them decide what they're going to inquire about? Or, you know, I tend to still use pretty conventional means of assessment, paper and pencil tests, maybe their essays, not bubble tests. But, you know, why couldn't I let my children do a portfolio or work in my school to do exhibitions? Mm. So I tend, though, not to think of this as a continuum. And I think this is one of the challenges that right. these kind of third bucket schools have, right? We have all seen progressive schools done really badly mm. um, because we sort of say, you know, we're going to be human-centered liberatory, so we let the kids do whatever they want, and we're not yeah. going to do direct instruction it's ever no at all. Yeah. And there's no, right? So a hallmark of the Cartesian-Newtonian worldview is this either-or mentality. It's either this or that. And a hallmark of the holistic indigenous worldview is both and so that I as a teacher have in my toolkit the ability to do direct instruction if that is what a learner needs or if that is what you know they need or want to get where they where they need to go in terms of their outcomes but if that's not what they need I've got another set of tools so I tend not to think of it as a spectrum because Mm. to me that makes it feel too I'm either one place or another place as opposed to I'm inside this web of considerations and I am able to be consciously competent Mm. about where I place myself in that, in that kind of ecosystem of learning experiences and engagements based on the human being in front of me or the the class of learners in front of me. Oh, that's so, that's a fantastic reflection. Great answer. What do you, what have you seen or what have you kind of reflected on in terms of the shift required in the value set of a, a human being or an educator or a leader, for example. You know, we have a lot of research that shows that great schools, you know, it's educators that make the biggest impact on student learning, uh, but only when they're supported by a fantastic team of leaders that where in mm-hmm. which they feel like their own agency is elevated and they're seen as fully human and therefore mm-hmm. that kind of becomes the dominant culture of this learning environment, which of course taps into all of the experiences uh, and the broader ecosystem of place-based learning, et cetera. So what is, there is something about us having to shift our own sense of what it is we do and who we might need to be. You know, the idea of we are trained to be teachers or we're trained to be researchers or we're trained to be in a certain thing, again, that immediately creates an identity marker in mm-hmm. which there are a whole suite and set of assumptions about what that needs to look like, you know. To, to be a teacher is to transact, you know, mm-hmm. at a superficial level, whereas to be a learning activator or good designer, you know, or an architect or an elder, which comes again from indigenous worldviews, right? It's this idea of being able to hold space and weave the narrative. Uh, what's, what, what's required? How do we let go of some of those old ways? Because it seems like it's the letting go that's as difficult as the picking up, you know, otherwise it's just bolting on a bunch of things. Like what can we let go of as, as human beings that are doing work in education that can enable this to, to take place? No, I, I, I love that question. And I think, you know, the biggest barrier to getting to this being the dominant mode of education is actually us as adults um, and the systems that we have created. Um, I, I will say uh, there was, oh goodness, this is eluding me. So I'll sort of come back to it. But, you know, I've, what you see in these programs and schools um, and what you hear when you go in and talk to the folks who are part of them is first and foremost, this sense of belonging. 
and the idea that this is a space where I can come in and show up as my full self. I can bring my full self in, whether that is with anger, with sadness, with trauma, with joy, with you know ease, whatever it is. And I've been reflecting a lot on this in the US. And again, I think this is true in many countries. I think we have an assumption that human beings are sort of born knowing how to belong, how to hold space for one another, how to have a strong enough sense of identity that I can let somebody else show up as who they are without it feeling like it's a threat to me. Um, and I actually don't think we do. And I think one of the things that has happened as we've allowed our cultures to erode, allowed rituals and institutions that used to hold some of this knowledge and wisdom and capacity building is that we didn't replace it with anything else. Mm -hmm. And so I think we find ourselves in communities of people who frankly are feeling incredibly at risk right? Incredibly alone, incredibly isolated, incredibly threatened. Um, and we're sort of seeing this kind of move into tribes, like our tribal mentality. Yeah. And I can't let go of this because it's... so I think, you know, when we think about adult capacity building, a huge piece of it for me is actually building the capacity of adults um, to sort of show up in a different way, um, to be able to hold space for themselves, right? So you have to get right with yourself and hold space for yourself so that you can hold space for the young people who come in. And I think that is like this next book um, that's coming in my head, right? What does it mean to do that? Mm -hmm. But I know what I was gonna say in the beginning, you said something about you know creating for the adults in the system, what we create for young people. And I think that's exactly right, right? Um, the architecture of factories was the assembly line. And you just kind of like organize things into these kind of linear efficient models. The architecture of nature yeah. is, is fractals, right? And fractals replicate themselves at different scales. And so in these, in these environments, right, what we're aiming to do is to create the same experience among young people as you have with the young people and their educators, which is the same experience the educators have, have of themselves inside of this learning ecosystem. And so you're sort of building that upwards. And I, I find that to be a helpful visual, right? Because then the question at each level of the system is how are we designing with principles of, you know, whatever it is, wholeness or connectedness or being embodied and having experiences, right? That allow us to grow in certain ways. And we have to do that for the adults. Um, you know, which is why I think so much of our professional learning right now, especially around issues of diversity and, and race and culture, aren't particularly helpful because they all sit kind of up in, in, in our heads and they don't actually give us a chance to kind of live into the discomfort, the newness of being in different ways. With yeah, well, that's a wonderful reflection. Just, just briefly on, on that, that piece around diversity, inclusion, you know, wholeness. Every time there seems to be, you know, someone, you know, commits something in a political space, they, they get given an empathy training package, you know, yeah. and that kind of doesn't seem to work. And I, I, I think it's just because we're not going deeply enough into who we are and the kind of implicit bias and the unknown unknowns, you know. This, I, I do quite like the work of Otto Sharma and Peter Senge, you know, the idea of how do you do deep listening, like generative listening, not downloading and kind of looking for confirming information, but actually this idea of holding space, which is, you know, unfamiliar terminology for, for many, but that's what a great leader does. 
they they can they can really hear who and and feel who you are and this you know the wonderful Maya Angelou quote about you know it's it's not it's not if people forget what you'll say they might even forget what you've did but they never forget how you made them feel and I think there's yeah. something to that the other the other well, piece I, yeah go ahead sorry, yeah. I just want to add one thing though right I, I'm I'm really struck by thinkers like Risma Menicum and a woman named Milagros Phillips who really talk about you know that period 500 years ago where we shifted our worldview mm. as being a trauma that was inflicted on us and is continually inflicted on us and anybody who works with trauma knows that part of part of kind of dealing with trauma is actually feeling the trauma and allowing yourself to experience it and then process it. And so I don't think it's only just deep listening, right? I think the reason these empathy packages don't work is because they all sit inside of our head Mm. as opposed to giving us the, the skills that we need to sort of move through discomfort, right? As we examine, explore, kind of break open some of this trauma that's being inflicted on all of us by this worldview that is so divergent from who we are as human beings. So I, I, I just think that's, that's something to keep in mind as we try and build experiences for educators and young people that are about kind of showing up in different ways. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I acknowledge that. And I think the idea of having what, what I've heard called coherence between mm-hmm. your head, heart and hands, really, or your gut, this idea mm. of the three places where there are, you know, neurological cells found in our body remarkably. You know, this idea is I can't, you know, we have a feeling and we kind of have emotions and then we have our cognition. And trying to bring those things together in a, in a cohesive way just like they are in the body, which of course mm-hmm. is part of nature. So uh, I, I love as well your, your reflection on the architecture of nature versus the architecture of factory. I mean, the language we use I think also just reveals our worldview. So, you know, we need an intervention. We need a mechanism. We need to pull some levers. You know, we still hear this talk all the time. I mean, I'm guilty of using it still. And yet what we actually want is not that because that's still trying to use this mechanistic view as opposed to this kind of holistic uh, indigenous view, as you say, uh, which is what are the conditions? What are the features? What are the nutrients? I mean, it really is using this ecological language because that should be the worldview that potentially enables the emergence of this. I mean, what's, what's the culture? How do you create a good school culture? You can't just do a culture program. Now, great, we have a good culture. It's how philosophy embeds into practices, which in, embeds into kind of the products or the outcomes, uh, as Charlie Ledbetter would say. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really curious about, about this piece. I mean, I think I, I talk in the book about instructional models, which I, you know, is this idea of a deeply aligned, intentional moving from here's our purpose, here's how we think about development, here's how we think about learning, therefore, here's what we're teaching, or here's what we're covering, here's how we're assessing it, and then these are systems Mm. that support all of that work. And, you know, I, I point at and sort of introduce folks to a couple of different instructional models, ones that people probably have heard of, like Montessori, or like Waldorf Steiner schools, or Krishnamurthy schools. Um, and, and what I say in the book is that I actually think for these third bucket schools, for these human-centered liberatory programs, really codifying instructional models for people is important because the work is so complex that we actually need scaffolding, I think, as mm-hmm. adults and young people to enter into them. And so for the programs that have done the work to build out the kind of all the units of work that they need, right? What are our theories? What then is the curriculum? How do we think about 
kind of executing those? How do we train adults to do them? Everyone wants to recreate the wheel, but I think if we are going to get traction in this third bucket, we can't afford to have everybody recreate the wheel. We actually need to codify the instructional models that exist out there. And then we need to give them to communities to make their own, right? And to make adjustments and make adapt, uh, you know, to adapt them. But that's very different than trying to put something coherent together from scratch, right? Children are aging out of the system as we do that. And so I think for those of us who are really invested in sort of in building our capacity to provide this for young people. And, you know, this I would say to policymakers and funders, right, you need to be investing the time, the money, the resources, and allowing people to codify these models so that we have scaffolded kind of um, ways of building new programs. And I think of, you know, scale is my other word that I don't like that evokes this industrial model, but I think of yeah. spreading, right? So how do you seed it? in different places and allow them to sort of grow so that over time you can kind of get this tapestry that comes together because all these little you know seeds that you that you mm. planted are sort of coming up and to me that's the sort of visual that i have inside my head as i kind of think about the spread of these um these models to to being the dominant one that's that's but, such a great reflection again scale versus spread you know are we, are we trying to create a big building or are we you know really seeding a forest that will, will grow well, itself. And it, it has to be close to the ground, right? Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of scale doesn't work for human beings. I feel like that's what we've done is we've kind of disconnected yeah. ourselves from the earth, from the places we live, from the people that we live with in this, this desire to sort of get bigger and, and further out and up. And so I, I just think these programs are very much grounded um, in the communities in which young people are. The learning happens there, the Elders are invited in, you know, young people are out in the world learning through kind of whatever, um, you know, issues or problems or challenges or opportunities they see. So these programs are very, very close to the ground. So I think thinking of it as spread is helpful. Mm. Just a question, Ulka, about the future of, you know, it's, I think in education, and clearly you, you do this as well, you know, we need to visit the future, or the futures, you know, the different scenarios. <laughs> Often, and then return to the present to powerfully act, you know, and potentially shift our worldview and our value set and then ultimately our practice and our program and our cultures. Where do you, where do you see if we, where do you see us going? If we're having this conversation in 10 years time, which I hope we do, you know, what might we be discussing? Um, and that can, and, you know, potentially it will be both utopian and dystopian. I mean, technology, for example, is, is both of those things. It's deeply connecting and also terribly dehumanizing in some ways. Um, mm. well, yeah, if we take, take us into the future. If we got, to my mind, and maybe this is because of where we started with what I've just learned, I actually think we would be seeing learning experiences and environments that almost felt more retro in that they would uh. be, shielding young people a little bit from the sort of disruptive effect of the new things that we have sort of put in their path to give them an opportunity, right, to just when they are three and five and eight, to learn by doing, to hold things in their hands, to kind of manipulate things, to somebody said the hand is kind of, is like the tool of learning, right? So if you don't let kids do something, and I'm like, you know, you can see me on the, on the video, yeah, but absolutely, I'm, yeah. when people do that, how are they going to learn? So I actually think, it, I would imagine 
that we would see schools as spaces that are a bit of a sanctuary from the sort of technology and the sort of pace of the rest of the world, especially as kids are younger, that they would be sort of like shielded, right? And just sort of held in this kind of safe space to learn what it is to be without these kind of like shocks to human cognition that I think technology presents. And then sort of gradually releasing them with intentionality into the tools, right? And, and seeing technology as a tool. One of the things I talk about in the book is this Cartesian divide, Cartesian-Newtonian holistic divide mm. actually mimics the hemispheric divide of our brains. And I draw on the work of a man named Ian McGilchrist, yes. who talks about our left hemisphere, our right hemisphere as being this big funnel that takes in everything that we are as human beings. It takes in senses, sensory information and sees patterns and that type of thing. And the left hemisphere is about kind of reducing that down and abstracting it and making what we have taken in useful. And then it has to go back to the right hemisphere, right? So the left should work in service of the right. And I think that's what we would see education being is this space in which young people get to be in their right hemisphere um, and learn gradually how to sort of engage in the left hemispheric work and tools mm -hmm. and technology that we have, but to do so in service of what they learned to be inside of this slightly more protected space. So I would like to think, you know, if we could get there, those would be the conversations we'd be having, right? We'd be, mm. we'd be starting to think about, okay, so then what does that mean about accountability? What does it mean when we say, are students being served well, like different measures, different metrics that we would be looking at to kind of say, are you healthy, right? Are you a, a healthy, functional human being who has a yeah. sense of yourself before you go out in the world? So that's one thing. Um, for sure. But we would just have new systems. And, and the reality is that even higher education and post-secondary is changing, right? The consolidation of universities, the closure of universities, places like Google and employers that are doing boot camps, that are doing certificates, yeah. like the whole ecosystem is going to look incredibly different. And, and I think that what these human-centered liberatory programs are doing is going to actually mesh incredibly well with that that it will feel like a much more seamless birth, uh, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. of young people out of their education into the rest of their lives, as opposed to now where it feels this, this kind of fragmented, really frightening transition. Mm. Um, am I getting into the right university? Am I getting the right job? Am I taking the right courses to get the right GPA to get me into the program I want, right? Yeah. As you talked about earlier. I love I love that, that idea of having, you know, this, the learning economy, you know, becoming the internet of education. How do we have agency around, you know, how does everything kind of speak coherently to, to itself like an ecosystem would as mm -hmm. opposed to, yeah, these kind of the rocket model of education you learn once, macro, micro. I mean, there's some very exciting things happening there. Um, oh, okay, I could speak to you all day. There's so many, so many more kind of philosophical aspects I'd love to delve into, but I'd love you to leave us all just with a reflection, like a take-home message from all of the very deep thinking and work that you've done now over two and a half decades, you know, for, through philosophy and, you know, psychology, development, uh, and educational design. What do you want to leave us with? This is a choice, right? This is, this is a choice. And I think we've been gifted a moment of disruption that has broken apart some of the things that I think we have mentally and systemically used as our reasons for not changing. And so as we emerge out of the pandemic and we go back into classrooms and have young people in front of us, 
I think this is the moment to sort of not immediately accelerate back into whatever normal was, but to actually pause, to have community conversations, to look our children in the eyes and really think about like what we want for them. Because I don't think choice points like this come up very often. Um, and, and I think whether we get to what I thought might be what I'd like to see in 10 years or not is very much a function of our choices. And the other thing I would say is just, I don't know, sometimes it's useful to sort of ground ourselves in, in that feeling to kind of remind ourselves why it's so important to experience this for a young person uh, and, or to, to create this for a young person. So I sometimes like to think about like, when was that moment when somebody, an adult, a supervisor, a mentor, a family member, a teacher, you know, saw me, right? Really created this moment for me that sort of allowed me to see myself as something more and to kind of hold on to that, right? As being the thing that we want to kind of create more than anything for young people in the moment to moment, especially for educators, right? Who I'm very sympathetic. Your, your lives and the demands on you are incredibly um, complex and crazy but um, maybe centering ourselves in that feeling and sort of holding on to that can kind of keep us inspired. Wow. Ulka, thank you so much for gifting us your thoughts and time today. Uh, we really appreciate you joining the Learning Future podcast. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.